this is a podcast where I talk to people with disabilities to hear their stories. I wouldn't expect anyone to know what life is like for someone who can't walk, can't see, or can't hear. But we have a responsibility to learn and grow throughout our lives. And this podcast is meant to help to see what life is like for someone on the other side. Welcome to Ability. In this episode, I talk to the head of the Student Accessibility Resource Center at Western Kentucky University. This episode with Matt Davis. So how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's great to have you here. Well, so, no, I'm having you here. It's in my office. Yes, it is your office. <laughs> I'm constantly reminded. You know, I'm going to tell everybody you got pictures of yourself all over the place. It's just you. Well, it should be all about me. It's just, um, I think it's interesting how social media has opened up to people um, thinking that everybody's entitled to their opinion. And, yeah, uh, no, it's, it's the worst. Yeah, and it uh, causes debate <laughs> on there, but it, as long as it's civil debate, then that's fine. Yeah, I know. So I know you have spina bifida, but tell me about it, spina bifida, as if I know nothing. You don't know anything? Yeah, tell me as if I know nothing. Okay. Um, well, spina bifida basically is one of the most common birth defects. Uh Actually, they can detect a baby whether or not they have spina bifida even before they're bone, born in, in utero. And oftentimes they can operate on the baby before they're even born uh, in utero and then operate on the spine. And then uh, that helps the baby uh, when they're being developed to, for the spine to develop and they actually uh, have more function. But it's basically a uh, fluid builds up on the spinal cord and then it uh, causes nerve damage to the spinal cord, and there's different levels of spina bifida. Uh, there might be some individuals that may have spina bifida, but you wouldn't even know it, uh, and there's people that can walk with spina bifida, and we don't like those people, no. Uh, <laughs> and there's people like me that use a wheelchair. I use crutches sometimes. People sometimes maybe use some kind of uh, walking device, uh, like a walker or crutches as well, um, or maybe they may have a... Um, uh, their gait's different, so it can have different levels. And also, uh, with spina bifida, people oftentimes have what we call hydrocephalus, which is f- fluid on the brain. Uh, and then um, there's different operations. There are shunts that relieve the pressure of the brain and that sort of thing. So, uh, in general, that's what uh, what spina bifida is, and it affects people in different ways. Uh, and there's different levels, so uh, everybody's really different. I mean, we have some characteristics that are similar, uh, but everybody's case seems to be a little different. Yep. It's actually Latin for spine split. That's what I was getting ready to tell you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> see, I know stuff. I took notes. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's about one, uh, one in about 1,500 infants are born with, or no, about 1,500 infants are born with spina bifida every year in the U.S. Yeah, they... Uh, the National Spina Bifida Association came up with results and that it's interesting that in one of the studies that our state, Kentucky, is one of the has one of the higher rates in the country, especially the eastern part of the state. It's interesting. Do you think that's just because of the lack of prenatal care possibly? Because that's I know that one of the theories yeah. is that there's lack of um, prenatal care or uh, prevention uh, or maybe there's lack of um, information about what uh, not just with spina bifida but uh, with other types of birth defects that, um, that that expecting mothers don't really have access to in that part of the our state 
Yeah, no. It's uh, it's uh, it's interesting when I saw the the statistics that one of the highest rates of spina bifida is in eastern Kentucky in the country. So it's interesting. When did you first realize you were different? When did I first realize I was different? It was interesting because you know, it, I when I speak to um, conferences, I'll do sessions and I'll speak to cl- classes, students on campuses that I didn't ever realize when I was a kid that. I had a disability until another kid pointed it out. So I think maybe whenever I started interacting more with kids my age, maybe kindergarten, that sort of thing. Um, and I really realized whenever I started going to doctor's appointments um, when I was real little, how much, how how better off I was than some of the other kids that had uh, spina bifida and other conditions that were at the clinics that I went to. So... I would say probably around kindergarten, something like that, when I started being around more kids that other than family. Did you get to know a lot of other kids with spina bifida? It was interesting because whenever I was growing up, the only interaction that I really had with other kids with spina bifida was when I went to the clinics, and that was at Cozair in Louisville uh, when I was a kid. So um, because I was the only kid that I remember that had a disability that you could see in the school that I went to here in Bowling Green. Um, and so it's part of that whole, my parents wanting to mainstream me. I'm using my quote fingers, mainstream. Uh, and so I think that was important that uh, I got that side of it, but also, too, was able to talk to people that could relate to some of the things that I went through when I went to the clinics. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What was it like for you in grade school? Like I said, I didn't realize I had a disability until somebody pointed it out, but this was pre-Americans with Disabilities Act, and so um, when we moved to Bowling Green in in the early 70s, we were looking at schools where my parents were, and uh, the public school wanted to send me to a special school, and my parents knew I didn't need that, so we went to a small a private um, private school here, uh, approached them and then they welcomed us and so my dad actually built the first ramp so I could get into the school I mean that was before you know regulations and so um, but that was back in the stone age that's when my the wheels on my chair were square <laughs> so um, you know that was uh, a long time ago so I really at the, at the elementary school I started out at, it was really good. It, then it just all went downhill when I changed to the public school. The kids were unruly. They were, they, you know, everybody has a bully. I was picked on. You know, junior high was probably the worst time period as a kid that I can remember because it was a different atmosphere. At the at the private school, I we used what I called reverse um, peer pressure. If you acted out or you acted unruly, then that was something that was looked down upon at the private school. But public school, you had kids that were out of control. It was just, it was a culture shock. Yeah. I don't know many kids that would say junior high is a great part of life. Right. So I don't know if it's that abnormal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you compound that with a change in schools and a change in the atmosphere, it was just traumatic, you know. So, um, but I think it, those experiences help shape who I am today and wanting to help other people, if that makes any sense. So if you go through something like that, you want to help people that are going through similar situations. So, Did your dad build a lot of ramps and accessible stuff for you? He did. He um, 
He built the ramp to get into school. I could ride a bicycle without training wheels or anything whenever I was a kid. He put he built little stirrups for my feet to go into the pedals. <laughs> so he just adapted some things that we just did what we needed to do to make it happen. Instead of can he do it, it's like how do we make him help him do it. So, yeah, he was always good. Of course, he was mechanically really um, good at things because I can always remember him working on some kind of vehicle to rebuild or remodel or something like that when we were kids so it makes sense that he could do that so yeah one of those kind of dads who yeah you know work on a car forever and try to sell it and yeah <laughs> he would get pieces of junk and people would laugh at him and then it would turn into this big nice thing of beauty after he got done and so and he still does that today so that's awesome yeah but yeah that's always been something that was a part of life is just that we made those adaptations, and it was just something that you couldn't rely on any kind of like government agency to do back then. They didn't have to. So, I mean, there were, it was interesting because I used to go to the commission. It was called the Commission for Crippled Children. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> now we, yeah, we wouldn't do that anymore. That would now be, it's called the com- <laughs> uh, the Commission for S- S- Children with Special Health Care Needs. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Times have changed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I wish they went to change today. <laughs> I would love to read about it. Today. Yeah. It would be fun. Back in the old days. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That kind of comes with the territory in my life. We spent a lot of time adapting things and trying to make them work and ramps. You know, we had ramps right. built all over the place, and it was always a thing that we tried to do to make sure that things were accessible and that I could do those things. I can remember being just... I can remember being so excited when I heard the first time there's a portable ramp. I was like, man, what a concept, you know? Uh, and, you know, the hand controls for driving and that sort of thing. It's just, um, and it's given people with disability, physical disabilities more of an opportunity to be out in the community, so not just school. I have a, you know, you mentioned a portable ramp. I just have a ramp that's folded up in my closet right now. Yeah, see? So, <laughs> yeah, I call that my just-in-case yeah. ramp, you know. Well, I have a so. backup a set of portable hand controls for, like, if yeah. I need to rent a car all of a sudden, then I have yeah. a set of portables I can hook up, so. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the technology they have for driving now is amazing. Yeah. Like, I've, I've seen it. You can, you know, get it where you could drive it with a joystick, like an electric chair even. Right. They've done some amazing things. You know, they're still not affordable. <laughs> it's a problem, you know. It's cool you know, to we, go to the expos and try them out, but you can't afford to buy them. Yeah, you know, I, I remember hearing I had a friend who who actually got an opportunity to use a vehicle you could drive with a joystick. Really? And, yeah, and at the end, you know, her father asked him, how much does this van cost? They told him $150,000 oh, yeah. was the cost of this van with all the equipment on it. And he was like, okay, here, <laughs> here are the keys, bye. So... Yeah, I got to ride in one of the iBot chairs. Oh, but that was cool. Yeah, and uh, back then that was, gosh, at least ten years ago, and it was twenty grand. So yeah. I always wanted to try one of the Dean Kamen wheelchairs that would go up the stairs and stuff, but they've actually quit making those. It's a real bummer. So, what? Yeah, they actually quit making them. They're, you know, I, I think the warranty's already been run out of all of them oh, too. Yeah. So they won't even repair them anymore. So, my guess is no insurance company would pay for them. Right, sure. So. They don't want to barely pay for anything else anyway. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, what was your relationship like with your parents? Uh, they took me on vacation when I was a kid, but I found my way home. No. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, 
had a good, of course, good relationship with my parents. My mom was really kind of a driving force um, to my independence, you know, um, because a lot of people with disabilities don't know have the tools when they get older to be independent. Uh, and so uh, I credit her a lot of that. Um, I was in high school. My parents divorced. Uh, that was a rough time, but we still have a good relationship. I still have a good relationship with both. So, uh, and they're both local, so that's good. Um, but um, I, th- I think some of the way, how I've, some of the reasons why I am here today is because some of the things that they taught me. So I think that's, if you have a good support system, that really helps. And th- they were supportive and didn't let me, they gave me the opportunity to fail. And I certainly did that quite a bit, but you have to learn from it, so... So you're the head of disability. You're the head of the Student Accessibility Resource Center. Yes. Here uh-huh. uh, at Western Kentucky University, what made you want to do that? Why not something else? Well, after I graduated, the short version is after high school, I kind of goofed off a little bit. Didn't really do a whole lot. Decided to go back to school as a non-traditional student in my mid twenties, and uh, and. Uh, had thought about at first computers because that was all the rage whenever I was went back to school. That's when not the internet started, but obviously it become a lot more popular. And, that's when and, Al Gore invented the internet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, why not try that? But then I, one of the characteristics of somebody with spina bifida is oftentimes they have challenges with math concepts and uh, executive functioning. So I was always kind of struggled in math. And I saw the math with science or with computers, and I was like, okay, maybe not. So, um, so I always wanted to. Um, I was always that kind of person that made sure somebody got home safe, or somebody. I was always somebody that was supposed to be a good listener, using quote fingers again. And so, uh, it just seemed like a good fit to go into social work um, because I wanted to make a lot of money and not have to deal with people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you picked the wrong line of work, I think. <laughs> so it just seemed like a good fit is because I wanted to have the opportunity to pass on some of the experiences I had and maybe help somebody not go through some of the experiences I had if, if uh, as a mentor or somebody that's a guide because uh, I was also a college student who went through disability services. I started out in mental health after I graduated, and I was in mental health for a couple of years. Uh, doing uh, case management type of stuff. Really enjoyed it. It was high stress and low pay, but I enjoyed every minute of it, and I'm glad I had those experiences. But um, I've always wanted to work with, um, you know, this population. So, um, and it's been a great it's been a great ride as, as far as um, being here. At the, I've seen a lot of changes, some good, some not so good as far as, you know, financial support for students and, and that sort of thing. But uh, we may do and done the best we can with what we have. You also do a lot of, you know, traveling and wheelchair racing and things right. like that. What got you started with that? Uh, it's interesting because there used there was a lady who uh, kind of started out being my mentor. She called me her second mother on campus, and you may have met her. Her name was Huda. Huda Milky used to be on campus. She was the equal opportunity director on campus, but my mother knew her before before uh, I came to campus. And so um, she worked on campus. I was a student, and she was a runner and still is a runner. 
and I went to her office and saw the Paralympics on TV and said I'd like to get into some kind of wheelchair racing sport. Uh, and anybody who knows Huda knows that if you mention something, she's going to be right on it and she's going to do it. So she, there's an organization that no longer exists in, here in Bowling Green called the Mayor's Commission on Employment and Disability Issues. Uh, they have something similar now. It's called something else. But they helped me get my first racing chair and kind of it just kind of snowballed from there uh, and to get me ready for the 10K that's here in Bowling Green uh, as a showcase. And so it just really... Once I mentioned that to her, I became their pet project, so to speak, and that's how I really got into the sports. Um, and then other sports that I've done, I, I met a guy at a race that played quad rugby um, who was a quadriplegic, and he said, come to Nashville and you can start practicing with the rugby team even though you can't play in a team because I'm not considered a quadriplegic. And so I got hooked into them and then got led into basketball and other sports in Nashville that I've played in the past. So, and it gave me an opportunity to hang out with people that were more like me and share stories and share similar challenges. So that's where that connection with other people with disabilities really came to the forefront when I started getting into the sports. Where's the favorite, what's your favorite place that you've got? What's the favorite place that you've been able to travel to? Gosh, uh, I would have to say the race in Japan that I do every year is probably my favorite. Uh, it's the largest wheelchair race in the world, and this year is like the 36th year, I think it's gone on, in a row. So um, that's probably my favorite, and I've been, I missed one year, but just every year except for one year since 2001. And my goal, actually my uh, goal before I leave this campus is to create, and it's in the works, to create a study abroad course associated with that race. So that's one of my big goals. So they would then go to Japan and yes, be uh-huh. involved in the race. So what we're going to do is maybe next summer do a study away program associated with some races that I've done in the States and kind of use that as a, a test, a, a, um, I guess, a pilot program, and then see how that goes and then go from there. It's awesome. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people don't know about the difference between adaptive sports and real sports or the Special Olympics and adaptive sports or – wheelchair sports so this kind of helps students and others in the community get a better grasp on what what that is yeah because once you get a better idea that these are real athletes and they do right. have a really great gift and right can really and they train just as lives. hard as all the rest of you know athletes it's just in case it's probably harder yeah and so it's um it's i, I it's just an opportunity to, to connect the two lives that i have yeah the university professional life and the sports adaptive sports life if you could have any job if education cost physical ability were not a factor just pure enjoyment what would you most like to do really i would say race all over the world race all over the world yeah <laughs> and just, do you actually want to circle circle the world and just do that yeah well if i could do it on a cruise ship that would be cool <laughs> we'll circle. get you a, we'll get you a cruise ship you can push exactly it's gonna be great maybe i'll just pull it see that'd be a good workout <laughs> uh because there are some athletes that i know that have had the opportunity to be wheelchair racers for a living hmm. um one of the best in the world now is marcel Hugh. he's from switzerland and he's won quite a lot of races lately and i think he won boston this year and um 
he won all the majors. So he on on uh, the day of Boston, that was a ninety thousand dollar payday. So <laughs> you're the wrong you're in the wrong line of work. Exactly. <laughs> so travel around. It's hard work. You know, yeah. he has a coach and he's a great athlete. But the point is, is that some people do race for a living. Wheelchair race for a living. That's awesome. Yeah. Not that I'm jealous of those people or anything. But no, not at all. Of yeah, I just not. don't. I don't <laughs> like them. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, who inspires you, or who do you look up to? And you know, one of the, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but in the disability world, that sometimes when people say you're such an inspiration, we kind of make yeah, we kind of scoff like yeah, like inspiration. Um, but who? who is my hero or who inspires me. Um, you know, that's, uh, I think it's goes back to the full circle. I think it's my mom actually. So she's the one that's encouraged me even on the down years that I had and the up years. And she's always been supportive. Uh, but as far as, you know, I think as far as, uh, inspiring, I think it's just some of the previous, famous athletes in the wheelchair racing world maybe um gene driscoll uh was one that was kind of i wanted to be like her hans fry hans fry is still super fast one of the best in the world and he's almost 60 so um that gives gives me hope that maybe i can still still got time yeah Yeah, i've still got a year or two left (laughs) you still got time for that you know professional wheelchair racing dream right yeah Yeah. sure (laughs) I'm saving up all my cans so I can turn them in. So, how do you train for something like that for a wheelchair race? Do you just you know you know try to go as fast as you can in a wheelchair? Is there a like a regiment or a trick to it? Uh, well, you put miles in in the racing chair because it's yeah. a separate chair that yeah. I have other than the one I use during daily. Put a lot of miles in that, and then I'll do some cross training, weightlifting, or swimming. Um, uh, and just try to break it up. You don't want to do the same thing all the time. And so um, I do have a rich. It depends on the, the race that I'm doing, too. Uh, it depends on the course. It could be flat. It could be hilly. So you kind of tr- model your training towards that. Um, and so um, I'm really trying to be consistent without actually having a, a coach that stays on my butt all the time like some of those. <laughs> Some of those uh, wheelchair athletes have. Yeah, so you're trying not to need a coach. That's exactly. Gonna, you know, that's going to yell at you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that may help me some, <laughs> but you know, I, I can't afford those. So. Yeah, I've always had the idea. I've always wanted somebody to build like a, you know, kind of like a wheelchair treadmill, where well, like you could, get, you know, kind of like where you could sit in the chair, but it's a mobile, and you could then adjust the resistance. And like on the wheels. I always thought that was a cool idea. Well, I have so one I of those at home. Like so that's I have, cool. It's a, called a roller, and mine is a little bit older, but you can have them where you can adjust the tension on it. But I train indoors in the wintertime on that. It's in the, one of my spare bedrooms in the house. That's cool. Yeah. Used to, they used to have one at Preston Center, and they huh. don't have it there anymore. Because the problem is I use a power chair, which means no company's going to – no insurance company's going to pay for you to have two wheelchairs. Right. You know, you only need the one. Right. So, you know, because a wheelchair that I could reasonably push would be very expensive. 
Right. You know, so that's anyway. So it's kind of the thing that I think about. Like, I would love to get more exercise. But, well, they have those, so. you know, those new like the smart drives and that sort of thing, where you can hook up a basically turns an everyday chair into a motorized chair, and uh, there's yeah. really some interesting technology that they. I have. saw one guy who hooked up like a. I, uh, a drill to his wheelchair to his push chair right and he could pull a switch and it would engage the drill motor yeah there's all <laughs> kinds of stuff different things now technologies which he mainly did it just to uh you know he mainly used that just to do wheelies but <laughs> well if there's a wheelie there's a way yeah that, that's the only thing i ever saw him do with it right he could pull it and just do a quick wheelie and go back down <laughs> i never saw him use it for anything else <laughs> So, but that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was funny. So just pull the thing and lean him back, <laughs> and then he'd stop. You know, so. it's a good thing to be able to freak. You know, people don't see that every day. So yeah, you know, it's a good uh, attention getter for sure. Yeah. Oh, it's fun. It's fun. I'm sure you get this when you go out in public and children always stare at you like you're this, you know, weird thing. Right. You know, hopefully, it's not adults, but it's usually children. I always find that fun. Yeah. I always make a point to make sure I engage with them in some way. You know, like I don't want to be seen as a grumpy right. thing that they'll be scared to talk to in the future. Right. It's a. I call it a good teaching moment. Yeah. Uh, for people. Yeah. And for absolutely. kids. Um. What brings you joy? Uh, Doing interviews with Jacob Holt, that's what brings me joy. <laughs> you are living for this virtue. Exactly. Everything I've done up to this point in my life is built has built up to, to this, this. this yeah. very moment. Uh, what brings me joy? I think traveling brings me joy. Seeing other people maybe making a difference in people's lives, I guess, for the positive. Um, hopefully make a small difference. Uh, I think seeing people happy is important so and you have to be happy yourself before you can make other people happy so yeah um but i think traveling sometimes even just being able to relax at home and have a chill day and that sort of thing and you know because i like to be on the go quite a bit i like to be if i'm sitting in one spot like i had a before i came here i had a meeting for about an hour and a half and it is over bylaws and constitutional wording and that sort of thing. Some people love that, but I have to move around or something like that, you know. And so um, I think just being able to be active uh, and be able to uh, do what I enjoy is, something, is one of the most important things. That should be for anybody, though. What do you consider your biggest accomplishment? Um that's interesting uh, I would say probably for me get you know when I graduated with my undergrad was one of the biggest accomplishments for me up until that point because uh, I didn't think that I would ever be able to do it uh, or would do it um, so I think that was probably one of my biggest accomplishments um, yeah I think that's probably it What's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges I've had to overcome is some of the um, change, I guess, some of the mindsets of people, what people can do if you have a disability, uh, and being, wanting to change that. That's a big challenge. Even today, uh, when I was a kid, you know, not a lot of people you see them out in the community with disabilities 
uh, but now it's more common due to Americans with Disabilities Act and that sort of thing and uh, more people with disabilities are able to be out in the community so it's not so uncommon but you get comments like you know do you drive a van well not everybody in a wheelchair drives a van van, Um, or how do you you have kids ask me how do you take a bath or you know how do you go to the bathroom do you sleep in the chair Yeah, I get that one a lot yeah do you sleep in the chair yeah so I think it's just (laughs) One of the biggest challenges is changing people's mind on how they should perceive a person with a disability. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Matt's just so brave. He's up every morning. Yeah. It's on his it's pants. It's good to see you out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good to see you out and about. You're like, you yeah. tried today. I'm so yeah. proud. <laughs> you tried today. Yeah. Give me a word for getting out of the house. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, kind of interesting that some of the comments you get, you know. And some lady, I remember last year, I was at a conference, and she goes, I don't think I could ever be in a wheelchair. And I think I made the comment, say, I don't think I could ever work at a place like this or something like that. <laughs> you know, so yeah. everybody's got their perspective, you know. Yeah. So you can be in a chair and be happy, or you can be not in a chair and be happy, or vice versa. So mm-hmm. just um, life is what you make it. That's happiness to be found everywhere. Exactly. Just because you have challenges doesn't mean you can't be happy. How do you think people see you? Uh, First impression, they usually see the chair, but once they get to know the person, then they don't see the chair as much, I think. Um, Maybe as a jokester. I know you find that hard to believe. No. You... Yeah. Um, But I'm hoping as a positive person, you know, I hope that's how they see me because that's... Negative people bring me down. So, yeah. Uh, I think that's it. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? Oh, it's you. No. <laughs> 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 we got some talking we need to do. Uh, say that again. Repeat that one more time. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? I would say maybe. Uh, that you l- tried to leave the world in a better place than it was before you got there and uh, tried to make that make others world a little bit better uh, by just putting in the effort to l- sometimes just even listen to people and so I think that's what I would like to hear that's awesome uh, my answer to that question is uh, is no hard feelings, <laughs> right? The pearly gates, you know, no hard feelings, Jacob. <laughs> or, or I'm sorry, and I'll never do it again. Just let me in. <laughs> so, I think that's all I have for you. We didn't go that long, but is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, I don't think so. I just think that um, sometimes when you have people that. Don't I think everybody has some kind of disability, whether it's hidden or whether it's not. Uh, it's just that some are more um, more apparent than others. And I think being able to be a person who projects a positive um, a positive aura or a positive um, attitude towards your situation kind of spills into other people. And so, um, you know, it's people feel less pitied for people that are positive 
And so, um, you know, I think that that's one of the challenges is oftentimes, like I said, people's, uh, who was it? Was it, I forget who said it. The only, what is it? The only disability is a negative attitude. Yeah. That sounds like something somebody would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that uh, you just got to, everybody has their challenges in life. You just got to learn how to adapt and you just got to move on and um, not let it get it, get you down. And, you know, if you need help, seek help, you know, because a lot of people try to do things on their own and then that's when they get into a lot of trouble. And, uh, you know, it's the pride thing as well. So I think just um, being a ambassador for the disability community is important. Being an ambassador of goodwill. Yes. <laughs> or wheelchair goodwill. Yeah. Don't stop believing. Exactly. <laughs> they should write a song called that, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm surprised nobody's done that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you should play that, like, on Fade Away. Exactly. Or, like I always say, where there's a wheel, there's a way. Yeah, we're the- <laughs> that's how we roll. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ability. And thanks to Matt Davis for being our guest. You can follow me on Twitter at TheJacobHolt, and you can follow the show on Twitter at AbilityPodcast. You can also like our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash AbilityPodcast. If you have a quick second, please rate and review Ability on iTunes. It really helps out. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep on rolling.